What is the greatest challenge that man has faced down through history? What would you say if you had to answer that question? The greatest challenge human beings have faced down through the course of history. I think a reasonable argument could, could be made for the challenge of living together in godly love with peace, harmony, and goodwill. Failing in that challenge has produced conflict, slaughter, mayhem, wars, death, and misery on a massive and near universal scale down through history from the first man and woman to the present day. Each of us faces the challenge in everyday life and we face it here in the church. So we might ask how are we doing as individuals and as a church in meeting this challenge. God is developing a core of leaders to deal with living together in peace and goodwill for eternity. If we cannot live at peace with others as much as it's up to us, can we really expect to be in God's kingdom as leaders in the world tomorrow? Remember that we're told in the book of Revelation that we are, if we're in the first resurrection, we will be kings and priests with Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And kings implies places of responsibility administering the government of God and his kingdom. And the priests were teachers under the old covenant and priests in God king, God's kingdom will be teaching as well. Teaching people how to live in a godly manner. So perhaps each of us could ask himself or herself, what am I doing to live at peace with others? One thing that we must have if we're to live at peace with others is a positive attitude towards other people. We cannot live at peace with negative or hypercritical attitudes toward others. No leader in the long run can be effective with a negative attitude toward those he who, whom he leads. Now, that doesn't mean that we should put on rose-colored glasses about the weaknesses and faults of those that we serve as leaders, but we can learn to seek positive solutions. It's not all that difficult to see the faults of other people. It may be difficult sometimes to see our own faults, but it's not uh, too difficult often to see the faults of others. Sometimes faults are hidden that we may not realize or know about, but in many cases, the faults of other people that we're around are rather apparent. But can we have confidence in God to rectify the wrongs that exist among us in particular, doing so in his way and on his timetable? Can each of us strive for perfection in his or her own behavior while allowing for mistakes in others? Now, flagrant, serious, and ongoing sins must at some point be dealt with in a decisive way, but I'm not speaking of those kinds of problems necessarily. I'm speaking mainly of more what you might call minor 
flaws in character. But in today's sermon, I want to discuss four principles that might help us to meet this challenge of living together in peace as God's people. And the, the four principles are as follows. First of all, let God be God. Secondly, let people be people. Third, seek spiritual perfection. And fourth, love one another. Now those are the four principles that I want to discuss in relation to this subject. As I mentioned, we will see weaknesses, problems, and imperfections in those around us, whether they're in the church or in other, some other environment, but including people in the church. And sometimes those problems, those imperfections, may prove to be impediments to peace, harmony, and unity within the church. In fact, that's often happened in the past, and no doubt it's happening in the present, various places, wherever the people in the church of God happen to be. But God is the supreme judge of every one of us and of his church in general, and that's something we have to keep in mind, that the supreme judge of all of us is God. We can look at the example of David and how he dealt with a serious problem in his life. It's not revealed exactly how long a period it was that Saul sought to kill David. Estimates vary, but it may have been seven or eight years. could have been longer. It might not have been that long, but because we're not given enough uh, detailed information in terms of chronology to say for sure as far as, I'm, as far as I know. But it could have been seven or eight years that David had to deal with being pursued by the king of Israel who was seeking to kill him. Now, David had done nothing to Saul to harm him or to make him want to kill David, except that David had become more popular than Saul in the kingdom due to his exploits. Now, that wasn't, that wasn't something that David was doing to Saul. Actually, David was serving Saul in the things that he was doing, but due to the exploits that God performed through David, God was with him in those things, David became a more popular figure than Saul in the eyes of the people, even though Saul was the king. Now, David was treated unjustly by Saul, and he could have easily become bitter or hateful to Saul, but he didn't. David did not allow Saul's problems and provocative acts to embitter him, and we cannot allow the problems of other people to destroy us and get us into a negative or a bitter attitude. It reached the point where Saul, due to his jealousy and hatred for David, threw a spear, evidently on two different occasions, seeking to kill David. David escaped without harm, but we read about it in 1 Samuel 18, verse 12. It says Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Then going on in verse 30 of 1 Samuel 18, it says, Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war, and so it was 
whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. And so it was that Saul sought to kill David. And Saul's hatred for David and his suspicion of David eventually led him to the rash act of killing the priests at the city of Nob who were descended from Eli. We read about it in 1 Samuel 22. 1 Samuel 22 and verse 11 says, The king sent to call Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were in Nob, and they all came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. Then Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and his sword and have inquired of God for him that he should rise against me to lie in wait as it is this day. So notice the accusation that Saul raised against Ahimelech, a completely groundless accusation. First of all, he accused Ahimelech of conspiring with David, which was false. And also he accused David of rising up against him to lie in wait for him when really the truth was the exact opposite. It wasn't David who was out to kill Saul. It was Saul who was out to kill David, although Saul, of course, saw it differently. So Ahimelech answered the king and said, And who among all your servants is as faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law, who goes at your bidding and is honorable in your house? Did I then begin to inquire of God for him? Be it far from me. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to any in the house of my father, for your servant knew nothing of all this, little or much. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. Then the king said to the guards who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and because they knew when he fled and did not tell it to me. Again, more false accusations. And the servants of the king would not lift their hands to strike the priests of the Lord. And the king said to Doeg, You turn and kill the priests. So Doeg the Edomite turned and struck the priests and killed on that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod. Also Nob, the city of the priests, he struck with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and nursing infants, oxen and donkeys and sheep with the edge of the sword. So this was what David was facing. And when David was in hiding from Saul in southern Judah later, near the Dead Sea, David had an opportunity to ambush and kill Saul. And some of his followers urged him to do so, but David did not do it. And from a safe distance, David called to Saul a short time later and said as we read in 1 Samuel 24 beginning in verse 10 1 Samuel 24 verse 10 he said look this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave and someone urged me to kill you but my eyes spared you and I said I will not stretch out my hand against the Lord for he is against my Lord rather speaking of Saul for he is the Lord's anointed Moreover, my father, see, yes, the corner of your robe in my hand. For 
in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Do you, whom do you pursue? A dead dog, a flea? Therefore let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. Then he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have shown this day how you have dealt with me, for when the Lord delivered me into your hand, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him get away safely? Therefore may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know indeed that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore swear now to me by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Why was David loyal to Saul when Saul was anything but loyal to him? David saw more than the human element. He saw God in the picture, as, as he said. He was not going to strike God's anointed. He saw God in the picture, and he was not going to take into his hands the prerogative of God. Now, David wasn't pretending that things were better than they were. He had fled from Saul's presence. He knew that Saul was out to kill him. But nevertheless, he was not bitter or hostile against Saul. He did not return in kind. He, was not, he, he, he did not kill Saul when he had the opportunity to do so, even though others thought he might have been justified in doing that. How do we react when we feel someone has been unjust to us or when someone truly has been unjust to us? The tendency is normally, given our human nature, to take matters into our own hands, to seek vengeance, to backbite, or to somehow even the score when we feel we've been done wrong or someone has offended us in some way. And this has happened many times in the church. I've seen it a number of times in the church where people get into a controversy of one kind or another and individuals become bitter and hostile. Sometimes it's just one party that has that kind of a reaction. Other times it may be both parties involved in the controversy. But that's human nature. That's, that's the tendency of human nature. But we, we have to overcome our human nature. We have to resist those tendencies. As we read in Matthew 5, verse 44, Jesus said, 
Matthew 5, verse 44, I say to you, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. So we're to be striving for perfection, but at the same time we're to love even our enemies. And if we're to love even our enemies, how much more are we to love our brethren? our fellow Christians, those who are faithful to the truth. Now that doesn't mean that we can't recognize mistakes and character flaws that other people make or and I might mention that we all have those character flaws, we all make mistakes, but we need to continue to love one another anyway. We should not become bitter or hostile toward others who have made mistakes or who have irritating habits or character flaws that are obvious to us, may not be obvious to them necessarily. Over in James chapter 4 and verse 11, James wrote, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren, he who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Matthew Henry comments on this verse as follows. Quote, it's from the Matthew Henry Complete Commentary. Quote, he who quarrels with his brother and condemns him for the sake of anything not determined in the word of God does thereby reflect on that word of God as if it were not a perfect rule. Let us take heed of judging the law for the law of the Lord is perfect. If men break the law, leave that to judge them. If they do not break it, let us not, let us not judge them. What he's saying is that God judges according to his laws. He's the lawgiver. And we ought not to be judging others contrary to the law. Now, there are times when we must make judgments, when we must make judgments concerning the behavior of others. And we'll uh, discuss some of that in a little bit. But ultimately, God will judge each one of us. Now, he's the final judge and arbiter of our Behavior, he's the one who's going to decide if we will or will not be in his kingdom. Although we, of course, in a way, we decide that ourselves about whether we are faithful to his word or not. But, but he's the one who makes the judgment concerning our salvation and uh, we need to be careful about judging one another, especially in terms of spreading slander, backbiting, or condemning someone based on our own perceptions of right and wrong, 
rather than on the clear intent of God's laws. Now, if someone is, a, is an adulterer and they're openly committing adultery, we know that that's a sin. And, and if they persist in that kind of a sin, it's something that can result in their condemnation. But we, at the same time, we realize that it's God who is going to ultimately judge them for that sin and either forgive them or not, depending on the circumstances. So we need to realize the limitations of our, our own, uh, the, the, the parameters with, within which we are to judge others. And we also need to realize and understand that God is the ultimate final judge and let him handle that responsibility. But there are times when we must separate ourselves from those who are sinning. Notice in Romans 16, Romans 16 and verse 17, Paul wrote to the church in Rome, Now I urge you, brethren, Note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. So Paul said that the brethren were to take note of those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which is taught by, the, by Jesus Christ in the church, those who are faithful, faithfully teaching what Christ in the Bible teaches. And... Uh, if someone is is uh, flagrantly sinning, then we ought to avoid such individuals. We must separate ourselves from them. Now, although we may need to separate ourselves from someone at some under some circumstances, we still need to pray for those who are thus separated, rather than condemning them in our hearts, lashing out in anger and vengeance, trying to get revenge or cause them harm. There are other, also other alternatives open to us if we have issues or problems with one another or others. If we see someone going down the wrong path, for example, we can approach that person and appeal to him to change direction. Often that doesn't really produce anything positive in the way of change, but it might in some cases. James 5 verse 19, James 5 verse 19, it says, Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So it is possible in some circumstances that you might influence someone who has taken a wrong turn on the path. You might help him see the error of his ways and repent. But there are other times when all we can do is pray for someone and we believe is headed in the wrong direction or who is falling short in some way of ideal Christian behavior. In 1 John 5, verse 16, 1 John 5, verse 16, it says, 
if anyone sees his brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that he should pray about that. So we can pray for people who are sinning, especially if they're sinning in ignorance. And sometimes, depending on, again on the circumstances, God may, may not condemn that person to the lake of fire. Now, anyone who, who uh, persists in flagrant sins and refuses to repent, especially after it's been pointed out to him and he's given, been given repeated chances to repent, we're, we're, we're told in Scripture such people who may become incorrigible are bound for the lake of fire. But we can pray for people if we see that there's any chance that they might repent or any chance that, that their lives might be turned around. We may, we may not be able to to uh, uh, influence the change other than praying for them, but we can pray for them. But each of us is responsible for his own actions. And each of us ought to endeavor to walk as much as possible in peace and unity with the brethren who are of the true faith. And we're given this instruction various places in the scriptures. For example, in the in Ephesians 4 and verse 11, Ephesians 4 and verse 11, it says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Bearing with one another, that means putting up with one another. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So notice that we are called to exercise lowliness or humility, gentleness, long-suffering, and to bear with one another. And again, I've seen on a number of occasions disputes arise among brethren in the church where one or another of the parties become hostile and bitter against the other when really the solution to the problem would have been to exercise patience, long-suffering, and to bear with one another. Sometimes we may be a problem to someone and we don't even know it. My wife tells me sometimes that some things I do are really irritating. She doesn't tell me that very often, but <laughs> somebody tells you that, you probably need to listen and try, try not to uh, irritate people as much. There are times, however, when we simply have to put up with an injustice or a perceived injustice and then pray to God, put it in God's hands, and let God deal with it. And that would be far better for us, as well as everyone else concerned, if we did that. I, I saw, I know of one uh, situation that happened many years ago, not here, but elsewhere. I don't think any of you would know, know uh, who was involved in this, but 
someone was contracted to do a a remodeling project in the, the home of one of the members. There was another member that was agreed to do the job. And uh, when the job was finished, the people for whom the job had been done were extremely displeased with the work. And not only were they displeased with it, they became very bitter, embittered against the man who had done it. And because of, because of this incident, the people who had contracted to have the job done for them left the church because someone did not do what they thought was a proper job of this project in their house. Now, I, I actually never examined the product that was uh, the point of contention, so I don't know how, how valid their complaints were or not. But I do know that it was not something that warranted someone becoming that hostile and bitter against someone else in the church and leaving the church over it. The second point that can help us meet the challenge of living together in peace is to let people be people. And I've already, I've already uh, discussed this to some extent, but at the same time, it is a second point here that I want to address in particular. We need to understand that we may sometimes have to put up with a great deal out of other people. And Moses is an example. God, Moses was appointed by God to do a job, and he was trying to do what God had appointed him to do, but on one occasion, actually various occasions, but on one particular occasion, many of the leaders among the congregation were stirred to oppose Moses and rose up in rebellion against him. And we read, that they gathered together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You take too much upon yourselves, for all the congregation is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Numbers 16 and verse 3. And so the congregation of Israel was stirred by a certain group of men to oppose Moses and gather against them against Moses and Aaron. And we read in verse 19 of number 16, Korah gathered all the congregation against them at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation, and the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. So what did they do? They fell on their faces and said, O oh God, the, the God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and you be angry with all the congregation? So Moses prayed for them. He could, could very well have simply said, Okay, gotten out of the way, and allowed God to go ahead and destroy the entire congregation. But instead, Moses interceded for them. He pled with God for him to have mercy upon the congregation. Now in judgment God slew the leaders of the rebellion but then we read in verse 41 of number 16 on the next day 
All the congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord, blaming Moses and Aaron for the deaths of these people whom God had passed judgment on. And verse 42, it happened that when the congregation had gathered together against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting and suddenly a, the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Get away from among this congregation that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them, for wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, so the plague was stopped. So again Moses and Aaron interceded, even though the leaders of the rebellion were destroyed by God in his judgment, but not the whole congregation who still murmured against Moses. They blamed Moses because the leaders of the rebellion died. And so again, God was going to consume them. Moses prayed for them. And that's an example of how an effective leader must take into account the weaknesses of people and realize that sometimes those weaknesses are manifested in outrageous behavior. Leaders must be long-suffering, just as Moses mediated for the congregation. Jesus Christ mediates for us. Moses understood the weaknesses of human nature and of course, God does as well, but if we're going to work with people, we need to allow for a certain amount of error and weakness at times. In Malachi 3 and verse 1, we read, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. One of these days Jesus Christ will return. God had a purpose, has a purpose for creating us and intends to see us fulfill that destiny if we will submit to him and remain faithful. In Psalm 103 and verse 8, Psalm 103 and verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in mercy. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. Now, sometimes God does show his anger as he did with the people of Israel, the leaders there who were slain, the people who died from the plague. God was teaching them a lesson. And yet it says he will not keep his anger forever. Those people, by the way, are going to be resurrected later on. And God will say, see what you did? Do you understand why you died when you died and in the manner that you died? 
and probably most of them will say, yeah, I understand, after he explains it to them. goes on to say in verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. God gives us many opportunities to change. He gives us space to repent. Each of us in the church is at a particular stage of personal and spiritual growth. And we're not all at the same stage. We don't all share the same weaknesses and faults. Each of us has our own set of problems, faults and weaknesses. Each of us has individual strengths. And we don't always see things the same way. We may have differences of opinion on certain matters. And so as long as someone is not, again, committing an obvious serious sin and persisting in it, then we need to show forbearance and long-suffering. Now, even in dealing with people in patience and long-suffering, sometimes that requires us to separate from them. In Amos 3 and verse 3, Amos 3 and verse 3, it says, can two walk together unless they be agreed, or unless they are agreed? Sometimes differences can reach the point where we, we, we are obliged to separate. Sometimes it's easier to love someone from a distance. Paul and Barnabas separated for a time over something that they vehemently disagreed about regarding another person in the church, Mark. In Acts 15, verse 36, Acts 15, verse 36, it says, Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of God and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take with him the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. The third point I want to discuss is that you yourself should seek perfection. Do not make excuses for yourself. Each of us should seek perfection, not so much in others as in himself. In Philippians 3 and verse 12, we read that Paul wrote, Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. If we are seeking God's will in our life and asking him where I need to change, he will show us. Seek perfection in your own growth and character. We're all working toward the same goal if we are seeking to grow and develop and overcome. Give others of the faith the benefit of the doubt. Avoid disputes and arguments with others when possible as you seek to develop and grow yourself. 
But Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22, Flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth, and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken by him to do his will. So we need to seek to be at peace with one another. When you say something, try to be sure that you know what you're talking about, but whatever you say, say it with humility and patience and avoid unnecessary strife. Fourth, we are commanded to love one another, just as we read in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22. We also read in Ephesians 4 and beginning verse 29, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom or which it as it should be, you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Do not gossip in a negative way to tear someone down. Be without malice in your heart. Edify each other. As leaders, we must develop godly character as expressed by God himself, which is love, and we must be learning to live in peace and tranquility. In doing this, we will be preparing for God's kingdom, and we will be capable of assuming our places when we are resurrected.